Hey, friendly reminder, this podcast is not for kids or people who have a stick up their ass. Friday, 5.58 p.m. I'm sleeping with my best friend's husband. I think my uncle killed someone in I his think suicide. I am I a sugar baby. Mom addicted to Adderall. I think I my sister is my actually my uncle's kid. My What's your secret? Welcome back to another week of Beyond the Secrets. My name is Ace Fanning. And if you somehow missed it in the title... This is the second part of this story. I always worry that someone's going to find their way into a part two episode without realizing and just immediately be dropped into the middle of the story. So if that is you, please go back to part one. And before we jump into part two, I want to give you a little preview from my newest Patreon episode, Secret 112, My Mom, the Schizophrenic. She had pictures on the wall of people I had never seen before. And I asked her who they were and she said that they were her family. She said her real father was in New York and he was in the mob and this was her family. And I, I noticed that the pictures were Google images. She had printed them. They weren't actual photographs. She had also created different Facebook accounts where she would talk to herself back and forth as her long lost sister. That's when I realized like, we have a bigger problem here. You know, she's delusional. She thinks these people are her family and she thinks that she's talking back and forth with someone else when she's talking to herself. This story is quite possibly one of my favorite stories to date and it is now available only on patreon hear this secret and so many more for just ten dollars a month at patreon.com slash beyond the secret podcast now as we dive into part two of this story just want to give you a little refresher this woman who is really just a girl at the time, has been battling her addiction. She's been to treatment a few times, but that hasn't worked. And so she's been dealing drugs. She's been making and using counterfeit money to help buy her drugs. And overall, she's just lost. Before you listen, I do want to give you a clarifying point because it might be a little confusing when you listen. There are two different raids that happen on this woman's house. One she is present for, and one she is not. You might have followed that, but if you didn't, I just wanted to give you that little bit of clarity. Okay, here we go. This week's secret, heroin, part two. I was at work that day. I was still working. I was still going to school. And I 
was at work that day and it was my brother and my boyfriend at the time that were home. And when I came home, I came home to like the mess and they had already taken my brother at that point. And then um, we got him released to treatment and I was like, okay, well, I need to do this with him. And then I went to treatment and a lot of mine was like, I continued, I didn't get caught in the raid, but I continued to sell heroin after my brother got arrested. And I knew that they were like following me. They were still like giving us warnings that it was going to come again and they were going to raid the house again. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to lay low for a little bit. I'm going to go to treatment with my brother. And then like, I kind of just held on to like, give it a year, try sobriety. And if it doesn't work, you can just go back to like what you were doing. I don't know what the correct terminology is, but were you charged with anything? Uh, yes. So when I was arrested in 2016, the guy that I was dating at that time, he had, it was, I felt like it was like an episode out of like law and order, you know, and I feel like everybody in their lives have watched enough episodes of law and order to know that you do not talk to the cops. Like your one line is I need an attorney or I need to call my lawyer. And so after we had sat there and watched them raid the house and I mean, they took every single belonging that I had. I, they did not leave me with anything. And I had to like, they made us sit there and like watch them do it. And after they had finished raiding the house, um, an officer had walked up to me and had asked me if he, if I knew why he was there. And I was like, I need to talk to my attorney. And then he had walked up to my ex-boyfriend at the time. We were in like individual cars and he walked up to me. He's like, do you know why I'm here? And he's like, I'll tell you everything. So he had told them everything that was going on. They didn't have any like video surveillance or witness testimony against me being involved in it. Cause I was like never going in and purchasing anything with them. And they had like video surveillance of him and like all of this evidence against him. So he testified against me. And because he did that, their like deal with him was that I was going to receive all of the drug charges on top of the forgery. So I did get possession of narcotics, possession of a dangerous drug possession of drug paraphernalia. And then I got several solicitation to commit forgery because they didn't have anything against me. The only thing that they had was his testimony throwing me under the bus. And that was how I received my charges. Did you have to do time for those or like, what is, what is the consequence of those charges? So I got really, really lucky. I had previous charges and usually in the state of Arizona, if you have a previous drug charge, you're going straight to prison. Arizona does not mess around with substance abuse. And I feel like they just want to lock every drug addict up. But I got super lucky. I had a very good attorney. So I got released from jail after 30 days and I had to come or go to treatment I had to complete the program. I had all of these requirements. They put you on pretrial services. You have like a probation officer and you have to like continuously 
EUA for them and all of this stuff. Like you have to meet all the requirements. And so while I'm doing, I'm meeting with this like pre-trial officer, probation officer, I'm also going through my court case. So I was also going and showing up to like my court appearances and stuff like that. So I took the plea deal that they offered. I didn't take the first one. I can't, it was so long ago. It's hard for me to remember what the first one was going to be. I had the option to either take the plea deal or to go take it to trial. And I knew that if I took it to trial that I would have the, I would have a chance of like getting sent to prison and the maximum for my charges was at least six years. And so I was like, I'm not going to risk that. I will just plead guilty and I will take the plea deal. So I denied the first one. The second one was that if I completed treatment and I completed three years of probation, I would be able to have four of my charges dismissed and then the rest of them would be dropped down to misdemeanors after I completed probation. So I got really, really lucky considering that I already kind of had like a speckled past on my charges for marijuana possession and like to them that's a really big deal at that time and so I got really lucky that they didn't send me to prison I remember like speaking I had to speak to the judge as to why I deserved to have my charges reduced to misdemeanors after I had been charged with nine felonies and the I feel like the only reason why I think that it happened like where it needed to happen because that specific jail that I was in had like a three month treatment program for its inmates, but you like stayed in the jail and did the three month treatment program. So I think that they were trying to be a little bit more progressive and like helping the addicts and alcoholics that do have to be in jail for extended periods of time and providing them with like resources to be able to like learn how to maintain sobriety and like create these like action plans on what they're going to do when they get out. Um, So I feel like that, that was the only reason why she did allow me to be released into like the custody of a treatment center and like, you know, continue to finish treatment because they could have like disrupted my treatment episode and then taken me like directly to jail. And they chose not to do that. Is treatment at all like how they depict it in movies? Um, bits and pieces of it. I think that Hollywood does a really poor job at portraying um, drug addicts sometimes and treatment. I think it depends a lot on like where you go, but it helps me get the therapy that I needed and they provide a lot of resources these days for their patients to like continue with like long-term care after they complete, you know, however many days, 30, 60, 90 days. And they kind of take this approach of like reintroducing you to society. So like you have to get a job, you have to get up and make your bed. Like you're learning all of these skills that you didn't learn or that you weren't doing when you were in active addiction so like you have to wake up early you have to make your bed you have to clean up after yourself you have to go to a meeting you have to get a job and like there were all of these like requirements in this like structure that everybody needed to follow but 
it was like teaching me how to live life sober. And then another like important thing, which I find I found very, very vital to my recovery was like having fun in sobriety. Cause there were like so many years in my life where I would just like sit in a room and I would just be getting high that entire year. And there wasn't like, there were bits and pieces, but like, it wasn't this like adventurous life of me, like having fun and creating like camaraderie and all of this stuff. And so that is like what I think was a very vital piece of my recovery is like, they really focused on having fun in recovery and like building really strong relationships with females because you are divided by sex. Um, and yeah, I think that that was like really important. I did end up um, completing my treatment program and I ended up working for the same treatment program that I went through and I had graduated from. One of my really good friends at the time was the person that helped me get into this treatment center. He was like the owner of it as well. I ended up working for that treatment center and I have worked for like the same company for the last, it's going on five years this year. I don't work specifically with clients anymore. I have like moved up in the company. But when I first started, I had six months sober and I became a house manager and I had 13 girls that I would have to like get to doctor's appointments, take to meetings. And I started on the weekend shift and that was like my favorite shift to work was on the weekends because I was making them get up in the morning and get in the van and taking them to like go have fun and like experience like life, you know, like we take so much for granted and it's crazy to me when you're like high and you're using substances, everything has just this gray film over it. Like the color green is not green. The, the sky is like this gray. It has this grayish tint. Like everything has this grayish tint. And when you're sober, it's like you can see color again. So I was so focused on like showing these women how to have fun in recovery and like build these like really strong relationships. And that helped me tremendously to be able to maintain my sobriety today was having the opportunity and like having that constant reminder of where I was like those girls were like coming in and they were me. I wasn't any better than them. It did not matter if I had six months sober. It didn't matter if I had a year. Like I was not better than them. They were me. And it was like this constant reminder that if I just like don't do the things that I'm supposed to do to stay sober, like that is going to be me. And it helped me grow so much as a person, just having that and like being able to help guide people through recovery and like show them what worked for me. And I still like keep in touch with a lot of like the women that I, that I got sober with because those relationships, you just like know each other on like such a deeper level because it's hard to explain addiction to people. It's really, really hard to explain. And like the best way that I can put it is like Oreos, you know, Oreos are like super addicting. They put those like ingredients in it that you can't just eat one like I cannot just eat one Oreo and then just sit there and like not eat another one it doesn't matter like what I tell myself 
but if you can eat one Oreo and then put it like put it away and not even think about like eating another Oreo, like you probably don't struggle with addiction. But if you can eat like one Oreo and you keep thinking about eating a second one and you go back and eat a second one, that's what it was like for me using drugs. That's what addiction was like for me. It was like, I could just, I thought I could just do it once. And then once turned into this like repetitive thing and I just couldn't stop. It's so funny that you use that analogy because just last night my wife was in the kitchen and I said, I was like, can you grab me like four Oreos? And like, I know that one is not going to do the trick. And so I ate four. And after I finished the four, I was like, fuck, I'd really love some more Oreos. But I, I did cut myself off. But you're right. They are very addicting. So addicting. I have to eat like a whole sleeve when I, or whole row when I eat Oreos. But like, that's so hard to explain addiction to people. And like, I've had people in my life that like, don't really understand it. And I'm pretty open about it. If recovery has taught me anything, one thing that it has taught me is like, my story is my story today. And if I keep that to myself, like I could be, I could be like really selfish and not tell anybody about my story, or I can be super open with the things that I have gone through and I can be helping somebody and not even know that I'm helping somebody. So I'm super open about the things that I have been through and like the decisions and the mistakes and like the growing opportunities, but trying to explain addiction to people is very, very difficult. And when you have somebody in your life that has gone through the exact same thing, the connection is just like, so it's so much deeper. Like you connect on like such a different level than with somebody that you have to like, try to explain what addiction is like, you know, there's another part of your story that I do really want to ask you about. And that is how did you come up with the idea to start making counterfeit money? Um, so I have been using a lot of methamphetamines at that point in my life when the idea popped up to start making counterfeit money. So I had a lot of time on my hands because you don't sleep when you were on methamphetamine. So I had a lot of time on my hands to like perfect my craft. And it was like a lot of like research and a lot of like trial and error. And I think that that was like my desperate attempt because I never wanted to be that person that like stole from her family. Like I never wanted to like take my parents' credit cards and like go get cash or like steal a bunch of like power tools or anything like that. Like I could not bring my, I would rather be sick. Like I would make myself sick. I knew that I really needed money at that time. And I would like, choose to be sick rather than like going and screwing over my family. I just like couldn't do it. I could not do it. And so I decided to start counterfeiting money because I had like spent hours. I think it was like two whole days on perfecting this craft of like not sleeping and just being super messed out. And I was like, okay, we're going to get this down because I will not like subject myself to being like a thief from my own family. And so then that was like how it kind of just started and it started out small and then it kind of just like grew. Like it started with like tens and twenties and then it was like hundreds and 
buying like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff and then getting real cash back when you returned it. And do you just, I don't know if I should ask this because I don't want to give people ideas, but do you just Google like how to make counterfeit money? Reddit. Reddit gives gives you some pretty um, in-depth examples and discussion. So that was how I had started, but it took me a really long time to like figure out because the new hundred dollar bills are not as easy as it was to make the old ones, you know, it's like you have to figure out how to put the watermark in there and then make that and then pass the pen test. Like there was a lot of different factors that went into it. And I spent a great amount of time and money on trying to make it look as realistic as possible. I'm a big fan of the show Good Girls and I've I have seen which I'm sure is not at all like the real process but it is the show is very close. It's one it is one of those shows that gives me so much stress just watching them do this and and try to get away with this stuff. Do you have any idea of how much counterfeit money you put out into the world? It's hard to say just because I was not always there, but it was a good amount of money. I think that if they had like really done like a full investigation, I probably would have been in a lot more trouble than I had gotten into because it wasn't like just one specific like county. It had been like multiple counties. So it was a, a pretty good amount. I just, there's parts of it that are like fuzzy just because I wasn't completely there due to like the drug use. So it's hard for me to put an exact number on it. But I remember like just spending like an entire block of like three days just washing and printing. So it was a lot. When the FBI shows up at your house, do you think like holy shit like this is now this is big time so my when i saw the black suvs pull up i was like oh my god i'm going to jail like i need to get high one more time so i locked myself in the bathroom to just try to get because i knew they were coming in there was no way of like escaping it you know and i was like trying to get high one more time and then when he had kicked down the door and he the officer had walked in and it said FBI. And I said, Oh shit, you're from the FBI. And I was like, Oh man, this is, we're in big trouble. This is not good. They're not good at all. Yeah. So the first response when he walked around and on his bulletproof vest, it said FBI. And I was like, Oh shit, you're from the FBI. Like that was going to make a difference or something. I don't even know. I was just like so shocked that it was like, it had turned into that. And it wasn't just like, sheriffs or regular like police officers or something you know how did you ultimately get clean and sober i almost want to say like what was your breaking point but it's not a breaking point because it's so good like i don't know what the right wording for that is but what so, what happened that made you get clean in recovery what what we call it and like what it's kind of like known as in the recovery community is your rock bottom. Uh, so that's like when you're like at the bottom of the barrel and you can't dig any further, your life has like completely fallen apart 
and that's kind of like where they incorporate like the steps uh the 12 steps of aa or na and it's like building these like steps up to like get out of the bottom of the barrel so like my rock bottom situation i think because during that period right before we had gotten rated for counterfeiting money was like when i was in the deepest depression i think i have ever been in in my life that was like when i literally thought about like killing myself every single day i prayed that i would overdose and just not wake up i was taking like crazy cocktails of all these different drugs in like hopes that it would just be something that was like quick and easy and i could just like not experience any pain and it would just be over and that was when i was like doing those foxhole prayers of like god please help me this one time i swear i won't use again after this but i think that my biggest wake-up call was going to jail uh doing 30 days in jail and there was still like a huge part of me that just like wanted to get out and like get high once and i really thought that like i really 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 thought that i was going to have that opportunity when i got released from jail I did not think that they were going to hold me for so long. Like for some reason, I just like couldn't get it through my head that it was like really as bad as it was until my attorney came to visit me and he was like, listen, like they're thinking about taking this federal, like this is bad. So I think a lot of like that fear of the unknown, like what was going to happen like through the court system. But I remember getting released and I my family came and picked me up. Two of two of my family members came and picked me up. I really like ruined that relationship with them. They took me to a sober living and I remember like walking into the bedroom and I was the only girl and I was like in that bedroom and I was just like sitting on the bed and I'm like what have I done to my life? Like how does this keep happening? You know, how do I like pick up a year sober and then like relapse? Like what, what is like the root of all of this? And so it took me a really long time to like reflect and figure out and like have this realization of all of the things that like I was like holding on to these like take to the grave secrets that I was never going to tell anybody about, but they were like eating me up inside like they were eating me alive and i remember sitting on the edge of that bed and i was just crying and i'm like my life is like over you know i'm 26 years old i just ruined everything i can't stay sober i have nothing to my name like they the fbi had taken every single piece of clothing they took my cat my cat ended up in the pound i mean my dad had to go and he says bail her out and then they took my, like, I was released from jail with no identity. They took my birth certificate. They took everything, the car, everything. I literally walked into that treatment center with a pair of combat boots, jeans, and a t-shirt and half my head cornrowed because I was in jail and I was the only Caucasian in there. So I had nothing like I was completely defeated and I I remember just making this like commitment to myself that I was going to literally bear it all there was nothing that I was going to hold back I was going to work on every single thing that I could possibly work on I was going to tell everybody everything and if that didn't work and I couldn't find recovery through all of that 
Like if they told me to wake up in the morning and sweep the sidewalk or go and sweep the snow or do some ridiculous thing, I would have done it. I would have done it. I was that desperate to just try to like stay sober and be sober. And if I didn't find it in this like attempt on getting sober, then I like convinced myself that I was just going to be an addict forever. That I was like that one case that was just never going to get it. What do you feel like were the biggest hurdles in this final time of getting sober, but also in staying sober? Emotions. That is the hardest thing for me. I know it's different for everyone and it's not talked about a lot in these like community support meetings and you kind of like brush over it while you're in treatment and you're in groups and stuff like that. But I think that the emotions, the emotions that come with like the ones that I experienced when I was a little kid and I was just like filled with all of them and I didn't know what to do. And then I started ripping my hair out and I started cutting myself like those emotions, those emotions completely sober. Like there is nothing that you can do to numb them away and you just have to like face them and and like confront them and you need to like have a lot of realization they call it emotional sobriety because we feel like our emotions are going to kill us and we don't have the skill set to cope through all of those emotions and so it didn't matter like what event I went through and I have been through a lot in my five years sober I have been homeless in sobriety I have gone through a breakup that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with this person. And like, I have never been through a breakup like that before. I have essentially been robbed in recovery. Like I have gone through some pretty traumatic stuff. I have lost so many people, so many amazing people that are struggling with this addiction. Like I, I don't even have a number for you anymore. I feel like I'm losing at least three people a month like the grief and loss alone is like really 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 difficult to see like how much everybody is like struggling with this opioid pandemic and it's so hard for people to understand but to know that like I found recovery and that was like why I stuck in like treatment and and working with these individuals that were struggling with addiction is because it's so hard for us to see that we're worth it and worth being sober that we just need other people to tell us until we can believe it for ourselves. I think that you have a very interesting perspective in your life because of the fact that you have gone through treatment and then you've also been on the other side of helping others get through treatment. Knowing what you know, what do you think is like the biggest key to successfully getting sober? Like, is it something you see in the families? Is it the support system? Is it something you see from the addicts while they're getting clean? I feel like it's the trauma and mental health. I feel like mental health and substance abuse go hand in hand. And then like trauma just makes it like 10 times worse. And it's hard 
for individuals to sit in front of somebody and like bear their soul and like be completely sober, have all of those feelings come back up for them and like not want to run and go get high. We're so uncomfortable in our own skin. Doing that work is traumatizing in itself because it's bringing back all of those reoccurring events and it's bringing back all of those feelings and we're still like learning how to live life sober and cope through life and I feel like that is a really big part of it and then also the mental health aspect of it as well you know the question that I get asked a lot is like are you going to be an addict for the rest of your life? Is this something that you are going to have to deal with for the rest of your life? Are you going to have to work a program for the rest of your life? And like people kind of like make it sound like it's this life sentence, you know? And what I've learned is that I don't know what tomorrow holds. I I never know if like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I am just going to like relapse on heroin. You never know. You can never confidently say that you are going to be sober for the rest of your life because this is like something that you never like fully get, you know, like you can't say like, I have this, I have like, I have sobriety. Like it is something that I will always continue working on. And it's something that we always have to continue working on. I mean, I had at four years sober, I went back to therapy and I did a whole year of therapy at four years sober. And like, it's something that I just have to like keep working on. And I think that that's the biggest stigma around it is when you truly find like who you are and who you were meant to be, but like drugs and alcohol and trauma and mental health all got in the way. It doesn't seem like this is like something that I have to deal with for the rest of my life. It feels to me that this is like my handbook to deal with the rest of life. I have learned so many things about myself and the 12 steps like apply to so many different aspects of my life. Like I have the ability to like have this insight into my actions and to take responsibility for my actions, to change the behavior, to make an amends. Like most people don't learn that. And that is like my, that's like my handbook for life now. Knowing what you know now and after everything you've been through, is there anything that you know would have benefited your 12-year-old self by hearing? I think that there is a lot of things. When you're young, like kids have big emotions. And when you aren't properly taught how to cope with your emotions, and like this is hasn't been a concept until like recently i feel like i feel like it has always been this like stigma to have feelings and to be struggling with mental health issues and like i can't blame the earlier generations because that was how they were raised you know there wasn't a lot of like education and information that was provided to parents as they're raising kids about how important it is to tell them that they're like worth it and they're worthy and to show them unconditional love and to teach them how to cope with like anger and sadness and like all of these big feelings that we feel and like showing support if they are struggling with depression and anxiety and I know that 
for me in my journey, it was really, really hard for my family to understand like depression and anxiety, even though like all of them were also struggling with it because it was like this stigma to like talk about it and to be on medication and go to therapy and process your feelings and learn how to be a better person. Like it was just this thing. It's like, if you go to therapy, like something is wrong with you. If you're on medications, like something is wrong with you. And I think that that like stigma that we have towards people that are struggling with those things creates a lot of feelings of like people not being worthy or that there is something wrong with them when there's not. And for me, I think it was just like those words of affirmation and my parents being a little bit more involved in my life as a child and teaching me how to cope with anxiety and depression and sadness and all of these things that I was like experiencing because I was doing it on my own. I felt like. Let's say that right now somebody out there is struggling with their own addiction and you could talk directly to them. What would you say? I think the biggest thing that I would say is that you are worth being sober. And there are so many people in the recovery community and in the treatment community that care. And I am so tired of seeing people die from this this disease. There's so many resources out there to help people and just get help. Like life life sober doesn't even compare to my life getting high and it's so worth it. You know, everybody is worth having a shot at being sober and like living this beautiful life and having like the opportunity to work on themselves and do what they need to do and not struggle with addiction because I've been there and I know how dark and lonely and depressing it is. There's help. There's so much help out there. What I hope happens is more than I hope that your story reaches somebody who is addicted to heroin, I hope that it reaches the people who are around those people who are addicted to heroin or other drugs and and give them the motivation to, because I think their job is exhausting and hopefully give them like a renewed sense of hope to keep fighting for their loved ones because as much as hard as it is, it's like they can't give up on them because they've given up on them. Everyone's given up on them. That's something that like my dad did, like my mom completely deleted me out of her life from when I was 19 until I turned 21. And even after like she tried to like make an attempt to be in my life at 21, it just wasn't there. Like we did not have a good relationship She told me when I made my amends, I had 18 months sober that she like hated me. There was a lot of resentment and hurt that she didn't know how to process. But my dad never gave up on me. My dad was always there and it was so hard for him. And I remember, like, I can remember, I think that this is going to help people that also are struggling or love somebody that is addicted. But I can remember, like, my dad never giving up on me and there was this one time where I was walking down the hallway and he just grabbed me and he started crying and like 
I'm so numb at this point that I'm not feeling any, any emotion. And he's just like, I don't want you to die. Like you are going to die. And he was like, I will help you. I will do whatever it is that you need to do. Like we will do this together. So just like not feeling alone in the situation was really big. And like, he came up all the time to see me on the weekends when I was in treatment, like he helped me get on my feet. So just like knowing that that support was there was really big for me. And my dad struggled with alcoholism since he was like 12. And um, the cool thing is, is that in March of this year, my dad called me and told me that he wanted to go to treatment at 56 years old. And um, I took care of everything. I got him into a really good treatment facility because I I was working in a treatment facility as a case manager and I had created all of these like really good relationships with a lot of people in recovery and I got him like the help that he needed and like I got to show up for my dad. I haven't talked about this with like really anyone so this is the first time I'm bringing it up so I apologize if I'm getting emotional but I got to help my dad at 56 get sober and I never thought I'd see him sober and that's that's because I'm sober today. And that's what's crazy is that he called me for help and um, trusted me to like get him through the process. And my dad's still sober to this day. I feel like because I got clean and like did everything that I needed to do with like working a program, he was able to like see how my life changed for like the better. And then it was kind of like inspiring to him to like want to do something differently and I thought that I was never ever going to see my dad sober like I was just going to have this life of seeing my dad as an alcoholic so that was like a really cool rewarding experience well and you know what too and and I think this is important for you to hear I think that a lot of people who struggle with addiction might struggle with this idea that they are weak and that is how they got to this place of addiction but what you have done and how you have gotten through it and and all of the hard work you've done takes more strength than anything i have ever done in my life and so while you've been to really really low places and and you might think like man, I can't believe I got that low. Just also pay attention to how high you fucking climbed out of that because that, that is insanely huge and that takes so much strength and so much hard work and, and so much courage to do that. So don't think about the fall. Don't think about how low you've been. I think it's so important for anyone who has ever gotten out of addiction to focus on that climb and just how much work you've done in your life. And that's why your dad reached out to you because you're the person in his life who he's like, you know what, my daughter, she fucking busted her ass. She worked so hard to get to this place. And if there's one person I know who can encourage me, who can support me, it is her. Yeah, it was it was um, a really like humbling experience to be there for him and like the way that he was there for me. like. My dad is the person that took me to detox 
He picked me up from treatment when I wanted to leave. He is the one that, you know, came up and, and took me to treat. Like he was constantly taking me to treatment. That was the person he was like, all right, you ready? Let's go. I'll help you. I'll support you. Like, what do you need from me? I never felt like I was like alone through my addiction because of him. And then I got to take him to detox and like show up for him and like encourage him and tell him like, this is what it's going to be like, but it's going to be so much better on the other end and it's going to be so worth it. And that was like, I was very, very like humble and grateful for that experience. And I'm, I'm super proud of him because I know how hard it is and I know how hard it is to get sober and like actually ask for help. Asking for help is the hardest part. I'm really proud of you for getting through all of that. And, and, and officially right now, how long have you been sober? Um, I have been sober just over five years. So my um, sobriety date is May 5th of 2016. That's huge. Five years is a, I feel like from what I've, again, all of my experience comes from TV. On TV, they're always very celebratory of like the one year mark is huge, but I feel like five is astronomical. You should see some of the, um, they have a lot of recovery in the meetings. And like when, when I see people get up and pick up like 50 year chips or like 53 years, I think the highest chip that I've seen picked up was 67 years of sobriety. It's so crazy to look at because I remember like sitting in that chair in my first AA meeting and people picking up chips for like, you know, three months, six months, a year. And I'm just like, I, I can never see myself getting to that point. Like that is so far away. And then getting up in a meeting and picking up like my five-year chip and being like, I remember sitting in that seat thinking to myself, like, I don't even know if I can get through 24 hours and here I am like five years later. So it's really cool to see how the program is also working in other people's lives that have maintained sobriety for 60 plus years, you know, like that's what's so crazy. I also feel like I would be very emotional to watch people pick up their like their 24 hour one because I feel like there there's a lot of emotion in in that moment of being like, I'm really trying this now, you know? Yeah. It is. And the really cool thing is that you have this like community that kind of just like surrounds you and uplifts you when you are in like those beginning stages. And then they kind of just like carry you through like the whole process. I think that that's why like treatment is really important in people's lives. Cause if you think about it, like these people haven't created these connections, like the opposite of addiction is connection, you know, like we need connections as people we need camaraderie and like that's what treatment provides for people and they kind of just like support them through the whole process you need that you need people i have one more thing i want to ask you about that it doesn't have to do with your story specifically but have you i just want to know your opinion on it have okay. you heard this narrative from demi lovato and this idea of california sober so unfortunately, there is going to be a dark side to everything in life. And with the California sober, it's hard for me to say because I have two of my 
parents are pharmacists. So I see it from like the medicinal side of it, but it is really hard for me to, to say, because I know for me, like being like off of every single mind altering substance is what allowed me to like work on myself. And I don't think that if I were to use marijuana and like say that I was sober and just use like marijuana maintenance for me, I don't know how it would work for somebody else because I haven't been through it personally, but I don't think that I would have been able to get down to like the nitty gritty and like do the like trauma therapy and all of that stuff because I would still feel like I was like numbing myself. I have a lot of friends that use medicinal marijuana for, you know, their, their illnesses and stuff. And I completely agree with it being able to help with all of these different illnesses, but it's hard for me to say like, that is sobriety when you're freshly getting sober because you are not clear headed whatsoever. Yeah. It's one of those things where I feel like I, I have an opinion about about it, but I don't feel that I have any sort of place to talk about it because I don't know what it's like to get sober and to struggle with addiction. So I I was just curious to hear from somebody who has been through it and how you see it. Because when Demi talks about it, I think it sounds like a slippery slope of behaviors, but every person is different and every journey therefore is different. I have a couple people that I know that are doing the California sober thing. And these are people that I have seen like not be able to get it and kind of just like flow in and out of treatment center after treatment center. And it's like working for them. So I think to each their own, if like that's what works for you, then that's what works for you. I just know like there's a whole different experience when you are completely sober and you're not ingesting any sort of like mind altering substances and like you're actually like facing everything sober and there's plenty of other alternatives like medications and stuff that help with like cravings because essentially that's what they're using the marijuana for is to not have the cravings for like the harder drugs but there are plenty of other options out there So like, that's not the only sort of like medication assisted treatment option. I'm sorry that you've been through all of that. Like it's fucking sucks that you have to go through that, but I'm proud of you for where you're at now. And I'm, I love knowing that like you have a hand in helping other people. If If your struggles were for nothing else, I love that (laughs) you can be there for other people and you can help get them through, you know, and, and, and having a part in that and inspiring people. And know, too, in me saying that, that, like, inspiring one person is huge. You don't have to help the entire world. You don't, you know, and your value is not only in helping other people, but it's huge that you can do that. Thank you. I appreciate that, Ace. Um, I did want to just give you guys um, or give you another resource just for people. It's been really, really tough out there. Uh, Like I said, I have lost, it seems like it's been three people a month. I have lost so many people in my life 
And I know that sometimes people don't want to get sober. Um, I do volunteer for Sonoran Prevention Works. So if you do continue using, this program gives out free Narcan kits, which will reverse an overdose. And I did just want to provide the information for that. Um, they do have a website where you can go and pick up free Narcan kits. And then they can also deliver it to you. They also do like hygiene kits and they do um, like clean needles and all of that stuff just so that you are safe using. And they also have a program of never use alone. So you have somebody on the phone and just in case like anything happens, you overdose or anything like that, they are able to contact authorities for you. So the information for that, you can go on their website. Um, it is Sonoran Prevention Works spwaz.org and they have all resources on there if you need um, Narcan or if you need to call the 1-800 number while you are getting high so that you do have help if something were to happen. So I did just want to let you know. I know that everyone who listens to this podcast listens for different reasons. And that's why I try really hard to give you a good variety of secrets. But for me, part two is where this story really gets me. Like, don't, obviously, don't get me wrong. It's interesting, sometimes entertaining insightful to hear about a version of life that I've never known. But when I tell you that I am a sucker for a rising from the ashes story, that is by far my favorite part of this entire story. When her dad came to her and wanted to tackle his own addiction. And the fact that she now works to help others who've been in the same places that she has been. I I just think that it's so inspiring. And it, it is exactly what so many people out there are praying for right now for their own loved ones who are struggling. If you or someone you know is struggling with drug abuse or addiction, I want to give you some resources that can help these resources were given to me by the woman in today's episodes and organizations that she highly recommends. I will also include all of the links I mention in today's show notes. The first is Sonoran Prevention Works. If you're local to me and living in Arizona, SPW provides community workshops and trainings, as well as risk reduction materials to individuals and families to prevent HIV, hepatitis C, and overdoses. You can find them at spwaz.org. Or if you want to call their hotline, the number is 480-442-7086. The next is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. SAMHSA is the agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that leads public health efforts to advance behavioral health of the nation. Their mission is to reduce the impact of substance abuse and mental illness on America's communities. 
visit them at samhsa.gov to learn more. And if you are someone who is currently struggling with drug abuse, another organization she recommends is Never Use Alone. And their site reads, No judgment, no shaming, no preaching, just love. If you're going to use by yourself, call us. You'll be asked for your first name, location, and the number you are calling from. An operator will stay on the line while you use. If you stop responding after using, the operator will notify emergency services of an unresponsive person at your location. You can call them at 800-484-3731 or visit them online at neverusealone.com. Thank you guys for listening. I will see all of you next month. Everybody has a secret.